Welcome to the Moving Forward podcast. We have Adam Hallisey back on, uh, who is editor-in-chief of the Progressive Brief. Say hi, Adam. Hi, guys. Uh, last time Adam was on was episode 140. And uh, in that conversation, uh, he and I talked about the moral character of the Trump movement. Uh, and that conversation inspired, in part, a piece that Adam recently wrote for the Progressive Brief after the election. So I've asked him to come on. Actually, I think he asked to come on. It wasn't your idea, wasn't it, Adam? Yeah, kind of a collaborative process. <laughs> so we're going to kind of riff on that piece. I'm going to ask Adam to read it on air first for those people who haven't heard it. It's a really, really thoughtful uh, article. Uh, but first, really quickly, Adam, what as an outsider living in uh, outsider living in Ireland? I mean, you're an insider in Ireland. <laughs> you're not American. What do you think? What do you think about uh, you know the fact that our president has refused to admit that he lost the election? I think it's the same as many other phenomenon that we've we've kind of witnessed over the last few years before 2016 before 2015 when trump announced his candidacy it would have been un- unthinkable that we would see an election in the united states where a candidate who clearly lost comfortably in terms of the popular vote and the electoral college would refuse to concede um, would attempt to uh, convince his voters the same uh, his voters would then march upon the capital city and uh, misinformation, lies, falsehoods um, would descend upon social media. It sounds almost like something that you would see from a, a kind of a developing democracy or a non-developed democracy of any sort. Um, so it's hugely disappointing to see it in the United States. But uh, before 2015, 2016, it would have been unthinkable. Um, unfortunately, it seems to kind of follow a sort of pattern in terms of the Trump era. Yeah, it seems more like something that you would see happening in like, you know, some South American or African or Eastern European dictatorship than in, you know, the world's first and oldest uh, modern democracy. I'm open minded enough to admit that when we first had a discussion um, and it wasn't too too long before the election, you uh, were of the opinion um, and of the fear more so that such a situation might occur. At the time, I thought it might be almost hyperbolic that you know the institutions and almost decency and common sense of the American people might override, but yet, here we are. Yeah. Um, believe me, I sound hyperbolic to myself sometimes, uh, and, and it's not just me. It's a lot of, a lot of people uh, in the mainstream press as well. And that was actually the conversation of our last um conversation together the topic of our last conversation together was the media and its coverage of trump um Mm -hmm. and you know how do you cover somebody who is so such an unprecedented radical threat to civilization um while still maintaining journalistic integrity and not coming off like you know you're being hyperbolic um conspiracy theorists i mean the ironic thing is trump is the conspiracy theorist he's spreading conspiracy theories but we are not used to having such a deeply unfit individual at the in the highest office in the most powerful country in the world. Um, so it's very unsettling, and it's it certainly m- makes us feel better if we ignore it. But when we admit out loud what's going on, it's actually rather scary, isn't it? Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And you know, the most kind of disturbing and dangerous situations are where by counteracting the conspiracies of fake news 
of, you know, a media inherently biased against Trump rather than Trump himself being somebody worth being biased against. When those are counteracted um, to Trump's most fervent supporters, it seems as though those conspiracies are manifesting. So, you know, as always, there's a tight, there's a tight rope to be balanced. But I agree with you that, you know, it's kind of an unprecedented situation in the sense that you wouldn't face it with anybody else. But with a, with a conspiracy theorist as president, um, it's, it, it proves extremely challenging. And not only that, but we have, uh, it's being normalized by, mm -hmm. uh, by some members of his party. I'm very happy to see for the most part, Fox news is kind of towing the line. I mean, they're pandering a bit to Trump space by running stories about his court cases and so forth. But in, you know, when, when push comes to shove, they always admit there is absolutely no evidence for any of these allegations that they're making in these court cases. And every single one of them is being uh, um, dismissed with prejudice. But even within Fox News, I think you're, you're starting to see the separation between those journalists with some degree of integrity. Um, I mean, journalistic integrity, of course, and those who are purely of, you know, kind of an ideological persuasion trying to perpetuate the, the position which is of, you know, opportune to, to them and their conservative outlook. Um, I'm thinking about the Laura Ingham's, the, the Sean Hannity's versus the actual few journalists willing to kind of uh, fact check the, the, the outcome of this election and fact check Trump's lawyers. Well, yeah, it definitely says something. And, you know, we, you have a similar problem on MSNBC as well, that the uh, opinion speakers, the, um, <laughs> the the pundits doing opinion shows um, are are much more um, likely to pander to Trump's conspiracy theory quackery uh, mm -hmm. than than the actual news part of Fox News. So that's a good thing. Um, but yeah, no, it is indeed quite scary that you have people like Mitch McConnell trying to normalize it. I mean, he even gave a speech where he said, basically, uh, you know, let's not act like this is all that unusual. But it is. It's extremely unusual. You know, it's not the problem isn't just that he hasn't conceded. It's that he is he is um, spreading conspiracy theories that this was a, you know, a, a coup. He's used that word, right? Um, and there's absolutely no grounding for it whatsoever. It's crying wolf. Uh, it's a typical authoritarian tactic to do that because then when somebody comes along and does a real coup, um, people don't take it seriously because it, it's now normalized. Yeah, and one of the discussions that, that those of us in Ireland interested in US politics have been having is about the future of the GOP arising from this, you know, for, uh, spreading of falsehoods, kind of claiming of a coup. I mean, it seems so monumental that can it ever be overcome? And, you know, I've, I've spoken with people who have almost won, won me around to the persuasion that the the GOP is, is in a really difficult position now, because I would have been thinking, you know, with the, de with the defeat of Trump, even though it wasn't a repudiation of Trump to the extent that we thought it might be, um, that it would be hopeful times for the GOP that a more moderate character of a higher integrity and a higher intelligence would emerge um, in, in, for the 2024, in time for the 2024 election. But, you know, I think that I've been won over to the idea that republicanism has been struggling for quite some time and that Trump is almost a symptom of that. And then you see the weakness of certain characters um, within the GOP, be it Mitch McConnell, but, you know, those in general that are, are willing to kind of entertain the lies of Trump at the moment. And you think to yourself, are there people of the resolve? Are there people of the kind of moral fiber to over the next few years drag forcefully the Republican Party away from this direction that it's been going in? Because that seems to me to be the only hope 
um, of America for moderation because you have a democratic party uh, susceptible to um, polarization towards more radical left leanings. You have a Republican party already firmly based in populist politics. And so a, a Republican party of moderation, of common sense, of compromise, of you know a decent sort of politics based in policy as opposed to kind of unhelpful rhetoric um, seems to be required uh, in order to counteract uh, any extreme leanings towards the far left or far right. Yeah, and if the Republican Party doesn't recenter on its small government, classically conservative values, and give up on this populism with its uh, flirting itself with its own kind of of far left ideologies, you know, protectionism and isolationism, I understand that a lot of people on the left don't like that comparison because I can, you know, I wouldn't want to be compared with Donald Trump either, frankly, right? Uh, but the fact of the matter is, Bernie Sanders does share uh, Trump's uh, trade um, and foreign policy views uh, much more closely than. Some somebody like Joe Biden or Mitt Romney does. So I think what's happening is we're seeing a conservative, classically liberal establishment fighting against a radical populist, somewhat left-wing um, movement in both parties. Mm -hmm. And regrettably, I have to say that I believe that it's more likely to be the democratic uh, classical liberal establishment to reign triumphant over the AOCs and the Bernie Sanderses, then the Republican establishment to reign triumphant over the Trumps and many other prominent Republican figures. That wouldn't have been my position only a mere few months ago, but having done a lot of reflective thinking and, and also have discussed these ideas with friends, you know, like Republicanism of that kind lost in 2008 with John McCain, lost in 2012 with Mitt Romney, lost in 2016 with Trump, and now seems to be perpetually losing because it seems to be day by day gradually kind of incorporating the ideas of Trump rather than outwardly and very emphatically um, counteracting them in very meaningful ways. Yeah, exactly. I, I think you're right. There is a way, there is a way for Republicans to do that. And it frankly means uh, essentially going back to cynically pandering to Trump, the Trump voter and not actually giving them what they want. I think that we we need to listen to the concerns of the Trump voters uh, because some of their concerns are valid, uh, but we we should not allow them to dictate policy. Um, you know, the, the policy solutions of protectionism and isolationism and nationalism and fascism, frankly, um, that that the Trump movement is um, advocating are is that is not going to actually solve any of these problems. It's only going to make the situation worse. So we do need uh, to find another way to speak to those people. But frankly, I think that the Republican Party for too long has forgotten how to compete in the more successful parts of the country. And if it's going to be a party of capitalism, it really can't continue to be reliant electorally upon the votes of uh, working class voters and deindustrializing swing states that are deeply poor and that are actually a drain on the national economy, it needs to be winning in the productive states where capitalism is actually thriving. Uh, and for it to do that, I think it actually needs to moderate on social issues because there are a hell of a lot of economically right-wing people in New York and uh, California and up and down the coast in general who would be happy to vote for a Republican who wasn't, you know, sexist, homophobic, um, and uh, racist and theocratic. Yeah, that's really interesting and kind of pivots nicely towards the, the crux of the conversation that we're hoping to have. As someone um, of a more kind of centrist or even centre-left persuasion, I think it applies to my own perspective because I do see there as a role 
uh, a, um, a sort of specific and you know very specific yet complex role for people of a more radical left persuasion because I think that there are concerns which they raise which need to be listened to um, when they bring up ideas of a more radical left um, persuasion. I think that they're helpful in the sense that they give us a benchmark to aim towards in terms of a more moderate policy pursuit but at the same time bringing about certain goals which speak to certain uh, constituents. Um, I'm thinking here in particular of, for example, uh, a left-wing economic policy which appeals, or, or a populist even economic policy which appeals to those who have seen kind of some of the consequences of globalism and a more market-based economy have inflicted upon them. Um, but coming, uh, listening to more radical concerns, but as you say, following more conventional and uh, conventional, approachable, approachable and realistic um, policy agendas to bring those about. Yeah, and that is a, a perfect uh, leeway into your piece. So, yeah, why don't you go ahead and read it? It is about this exact topic of of the problem of the Trump voter. And, and uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, my takeaway when I was reading it is, I think that your what you express in it is very noble. Um, but just practically speaking, I'm not sure that enough of those Trump voters are reasonable um, in order for appealing to their reason to work. Um, you know, maybe the solution is to the Democrats, actually, which, you know, if they're going to stay the more left wing party in the United States, maybe the Democrats need to win some of those people back uh, so that the Republicans can start as I said, uh, focusing on, you know, winning in the states where capitalism is actually thriving in, you know, the information age and globalism and so forth, because we're just not going to go back to a time of, you know, industrial America making everything within its borders. It's just not realistic. But yeah, okay. So Adam, why don't you read your piece, uh, starting with the title? Yeah. So the title is The Moral Character of Trump Supporters is Not the Right Thing to be Discussing in This Moment. Um, Harvard, Harvard professor Michael Sandel has been one of the United States' preeminent political philosophers for a number of decades. Following the election of Donald Trump in 2016, after the brash billionaire businessman defeated his Democratic opponent and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, Sandel was one of few who had a legitimate claim of being totally unsurprised. He had written as far back as 1996 that US democracy and global liberalism were displaying weaknesses and, without reform, would give way of a politics which would promise to take back our culture and take back our country. Shortly after Trump's 2016 election, Sandel went on the record condemning the comments of Clinton who had, in the midst of a tense and conscientious campaign, contentious campaign, referred to half of those who supported Trump as a basket of deplorables, racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. Trump received 63 million votes in that election. He received over, 40, over 72 million votes last week. Sandel, unlike Clinton, empathized with those who supported Trump. Their indignation, according to him, was in fact righteous, a revolt against the tyranny of merit and elites, and Trump supporters should be listened to, not scorned. Sandel has consistently written about his view that a commitment to the meritocratic principle that the winners in society are financially successful on the basis of their own merit and hard work, and the losers have nobody to blame but themselves, has led to political chaos and a deficit in civic cohesion. We have come to believe over the past few decades, which have coincided with the growth in market-based economics and globalization, that if everyone has an equal chance, surely the winners deserve to enjoy their spoils. The reality is that not everybody does have an equal chance. In the US, for example, there are more students attending Ivy League colleges from the richest 1% of families in America 
than there are from the bottom half. In Ireland, children from poor families tend to stay poor as they grow up, partly because they are not taught how to manage their finances, partly because they never encounter significant enough finances to require management. Children born into rich families, on the flip side, have an inherent advantage in a number of ways, not least because their affluent parents have the opportunity to pass down an inheritance to them while alive and deceased. And so the perception of, in of inequality has inevitably exploded. Average workers feel underpaid, undervalued, and resent they those they believe to have amassed unthinkable amounts of wealth. What's worse, we've never come close to achieving economic equality of opportunity. Average workers have identified a systemic unfairness in the socio-economic ladder that has allowed the richest to reach the top, while many of those below were never afforded the same opportunities, never afforded the same chance. Populists like Trump, according to Sandel, have identified this frustration on, of missing out, of feeling like one lacks a stake in society far better than those on the centre-left, centre and centre-right, and that is a large part of the reason why he won. My thoughts instantly veered towards Sandel when I saw a viral tweet last week shortly after it became clear that Democratic candidate Joe Biden was on track to become president-elect. The tweet pleaded with Biden supporters to reach out to a Trump supporter they know, empathise with them, tell them they know how they feel, and let them know it's going to be okay. Even as somebody firmly committed to a politics of inclusion and a belief in the importance of, li of listening to one another and encouraging con constructive bipartisan discourse, it all came across as contrived and platitudes. How could Biden supporters possibly be expected to, instantaneously, in instantaneously after victory, have soothing, frustrated Trump backers as their initial instinct? The tweet was lambasted, even by many of those who would have been open to such a message of forgiveness for those who voted for Trump in 2016, but who felt to vote to re-elect Trump after witnessing his record was simply unforgivable. Recently, I was on a, a popular political podcast based out of the United States called the Moving Forward Podcast. As part of the discussion about the rise of populism and a preview of the US election, the podcast's host, Rio Veradineer, a former Republican who left the party after it became enveloped by Trump and his agenda, was not shy when outlining his thoughts on Trump supporters. It was a mistake for Hillary Clinton to use the term deplorable, but I'm not running for office, so I can say it, Veradineer continued. I think Clinton, Hillary Clinton knew all too well why Trump supporters like Trump. Feeling out of touch for decades with the Democratic Party that embraced civil rights and social progressivism, thinkers like Veradineer say, the white working class was very aware of why it supported Trump. Slogans such as drain the swamp appealed to their anti-intellectualism. Trump's racist dog whistles were not falling on deaf ears. The administration's Muslim ban delighted their xenophobia. Furthermore, Trump's populist economic policy is also not the way forward, and his character has damaged the image of the GOP, according to Veradineer. My position on the question surrounding the moral character of those Trump supporters is complicated, but also I can't help but feel the right question is not being asked. People who come down on Sandel's side of the argument that Trump supporters mainly like Trump because he rails against elites, of course, admit the situation's nuance and recognise that there are, in fact, a great number of Trump supporters who hold deplorable value systems. But isn't there always a faction of a candidate supporters who could be labelled as such, particularly by those who don't agree with them? Similarly, I'm sure that those who side with Ferdinand recognize that not all Trump supporters are reprehensible and that if we are to believe that US democracy facilitates 70 million racist, sexist and homophobes each election, our future prospects of cohesion and prosperity are already irreparably damaged. It should also be noted that the debate about the character of a certain cohort of society is not confined to America. In the United Kingdom, when pestered by a pensioner on issues surrounding migration and multiculturalism, then Prime Minister Gordon Brown famously referred to the elderly lady as a bigot and a hot mic, something he later apologised for. 
If we accept the fact that there is a large minority in society that hold morally objectionable belief systems, and for the sake of argument to say that it's between 10 and 15% of the general population, making it around one in five Trump supporters, these people will surely exist irrespective of an ongoing election or a, or a particular candidacy. Their positions are their positions, regardless of the politics of the day. The danger emerges when, firstly, this section of society feels disproportionately emboldened to allow this deep-rooted hatred to manifest itself in daily life compared to normal times, and secondly, when the actions of a candidate or president lead to a broadening of the influence and membership of this section of society. I personally know many Trump supporters, some from the United States, some who live in Ireland. They are, for the most part, an upright group of people who've been duped to believe that Trump is an upholder of conservative politics and who, have, and who have differences with progressive orthodoxy who see Trump as the preeminent defender against such ideas becoming commonplace. They are not bad people. An objective look at what has transpired in the United States since Trump first announced his candidacy, however, undoubtedly shows that those bigots who did exist felt emboldened to allow their prejudice to show and harm society, and that the number of those who believed in bigoted ideas has also grown. It would be unfair to characterize Trump supporters as an almost uniformly bad group of people, though I don't think that is an opinion held by many, even among those who fer most fervently despise the type of po politics Trump represents. It is fair, however, to believe that politicians of Trump's ilk, their constant dog whistling, and their prejudiced policy agendas allow for racism and discrimination to more comfortably expose itself and to expand its reach to a greater extent than it does with a mainstream, respectable politician in office. The question now should be, how can we work to ensure politicians of Trump's character and persuasion do not make it to the White House again, allowing them to inflict lasting damage to the moral fibre of American society? The United States was far from perfect before Trump took the oath of office, and it would be facetious to suggest that the election of Joe Biden promises some immediate fundamental altering of Americans' way of life. But every year America progresses without a Donald Trump-type politician in office is a good year for its future, and how that is best achieved by appealing to those Trump supporters who are reasonable enough to be appealed to is the real question that we should be asking. Yeah, that's a very well written piece. Um, I definitely recommend everybody go check out the progressive brief in general. It's one of the more uh, thoughtful um, news magazines. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah, I think that's a fair um, characterization. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's one of the, one of the more, more, uh, thought provoking ones that I've found and I definitely recommend, recommend people check it out. Okay. So why, I mean, why did you feel compelled to write that and how do you think it fit into our previous conversation? And, and then I, I guess we can just kind of go from there. Yeah. Look, being totally truthful ever since our last conversation, it's been a question mulling in my mind. Um, I, I remember specifically you, your, your just completely admirable willingness to call out what you saw as the the truth being that look people are are kind of um kind of hesitantly skipping around the idea that there are a great number of trump supporters who hold racist sexist homophobic xenophobic prejudiced belief systems and i think that that is something um people are generally unwilling to do i think um, out of interest, the reason why people are unwilling to do that is because most people know Trump supporters. They're part of their friend group. They're part of their family. It's a luxury to be able to, um, you know, narrowly select those who you, you live to live, you choose to live your life with on the basis of politics. Most people don't have that luxury. And so we constantly interact with those who happen to kind of 
sit on the other side of the ideological um, spectrum or on the other side of the political aisle. And so it's something that I've constantly been thinking about and discussed with friends and colleagues. You know, is it the case that most Trump supporters support Trump on the basis of some prejudiced belief system in America? Or the, the other side of the argument to give it credence and to give it a, a voice is that Trump supporters mainly support Trump because they're, they're sick of the political establishment. They're sick of an economic um, and political status quo that they feel has done them wrong, that globalization has meant that they're, po they're poorly paid, they've lost their jobs, they've um, no sense of dignity or respect in their work. So it's a question that I've been constantly mulling over. And one of the criticisms that I've received of that piece of the past few days is that I don't se seem to take any stance. I don't take either side. But I think part of the reason is because there's both truths and drawbacks to either side. But at the same time, to answer your question, I've, I've been mulling over this, this um, particular topic ever since we last spoke. And uh, I'm happy to be back here discussing it again. Yeah, I think it is the topic of the age. Uh, it, it certainly defined the Trump era, um, and it's possible um, that it might continue to define republicanism. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to call it conservatism or right-wing politics, because I, I don't think that those labels apply uh, to Trumpism in the same way that it applied to what, what the Republican Party was before Trump. Um, so yeah, no, I think it's important to talk about, and obviously I agree with you that not every single person who voted for Trump is, you know, a, a bigot, at least not to the same degree. I mean, it's not like it's an on-off switch. The truth of the matter is, studies show pretty much everybody holds um, prejudices. Uh, the, the difference is some of us know that enough um, to feel guilty about it. <laughs> yeah, enough to the That's really the main difference, right? I mean, um, anybody who pretends that they, they are... They don't hold any prejudices is lying. There's a famous quote from um, a, an Italian interview from an Italian a, a general election a couple of years ago where a far right candidate was doing quite well. And the interviewer asked um, the man on the street, you know, what do you make of this anti-immigration rhetoric? What do you make of this discriminatory rhetoric on the behalf of the candidate? Um, and the, the interviewee said that he helps the poor people in this country. He understands um, how many of us feel. And I suppose he might be prejudiced and he might be some sort of fascist, but what can you do? And I think the answer by, by, by most people would be, well, you don't vote for him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right, great. So we're, we're, let's put things into a little perspective, a little uh, context, maybe by adding my perspective to it. So the first thing to, that I notice when you're talking is that I actually don't know very many Trump vote, Trump, Trump supporters. Um, I know a lot of Republicans, uh, but most, not all, but most of the Republicans that I know, I mean, ad admittedly, these are California Republicans and or Oregonian Republicans. These are, you know, a New, New, New Yorker Republicans. These are not uh, middle America Republicans, right? But these people are neoliberal on economic policy, neoconservative on foreign policy, and a little bit conservative on social issues in the sense that, you know, most basically all of the ones that I know support same-sex marriage. In fact, I think all of them do. I can't think of one who doesn't. Uh, basically, all of them support a, uh, a woman's right to choose. All of them do, um, but some have more uh, red lines on where you know where they would draw the line. Um, we're not talking about Trump voters, my Repu the Republicans that I know. You see what I'm saying? And so I don't have that problem of uh, if I if I say Trump voters are bad people, 
I'm not speaking about people I know about, with one exception, which is uh, I do actually have one person. He's my half-brother from my mom's first marriage. Uh, He's older than I am. He's Generation X. And I'm not even sure I would call him a Trump supporter. He's more of a Trump voter. Uh, He doesn't like Donald Trump. He he doesn't like uh, Trump's bigotry. And I don't think my half-brother is a bigot. But he did vote for Trump mainly because he believes that the Democratic Party is totally taken over by socialists. And I tried to persuade him that that is not yet the case. Uh, And, you know, I couldn't I couldn't get him to listen to reason. But that's literally the only one I can think of. Right. So I I don't have that problem. And then there's the other fact that, I mean, I'm I'm on the right. And so for me to say that Trump voters, populist, economic populist, left wing, protectionist, isolationist, anti-establishment policy preferences are some kind of a mitigating factor doesn't make sense because from where I'm coming from, left-wing economics is just another expression of their immorality. Mm-hmm. That's that's really interesting and, and really insightful. It reminds me of, of a thought that I've had recently, which is that it's very difficult to fully understand um, a political culture uh, and, you know, a moment in time without fully living it. And so, as somebody who has studied, um, you're aware of my background, has studied US politics and covered US politics since 2015, but covering it from Ireland, I still, it's not cliched, I still find it really important to recognize that although I can study the political ins and outs of the structural systems, um, and I can study the ins and outs of the day in terms of the policy proposals of the day, the people of the day, I can't grasp a full understanding of what the feeling is in America. And so, having debates with um, many people who've supported Trump on college radio and in general forums in Ireland, I was far more confident of a Joe Biden win than they were. And one point which I didn't recognize at the time, which I do think you mentioned there and does deserve credence, is that a lot of those Trump supporters who supported him were were very fearful of um, a far left type of politics enveloping the Democratic Party, be that socially and economically, socially in terms of progressive orthodoxy, uh, political correctness, a sort of uh, social culture whereby everybody is perpetually offended. um, And if you aren't, you're losing. uh, Becoming the norm was something which really kind of invoked fear in these people. And they felt that Donald Trump was the defender against that. And economic policy, when you look at the polling in a a state like Florida, and you saw Cuban immigrants who were um, unjustifiably and, you know, might have been misinformed on the issue through through Trump um, ads, but were successfully convinced that Joe Biden was some sort of socialist when obviously that isn't the case. So I I, I grasp the point that like it's, I, I am a believer that it's going to be tough for someone in Ireland to fully grasp how the American people are feeling um, across a, a, a variety of states. But at the same time, I, I couldn't help but feel that those people who did believe in these positions were being totally duped by Trump, because as I say, Joe Biden isn't a socialist. And as I say, the Democratic Party as it stands, and as you mentioned, isn't enveloped by um, political correctness as a whole. So I think that, you know, again, if anything, it might show the, the power of political advertising and um, the fear that Americans hold of a fair left brand of politics. Yeah, exactly. And and so if going back to what I said about how I think you're right that not not all 72 million people who voted for Trump are bigots. Um, I also don't even necessarily think that all 72 million people who voted for Trump are economic populists. I think there are a lot of people, and this maybe speaks more to 
just ignorance. You know, may, may, a lot of people just don't have time. They're too busy living their lives and feeding their families um, to follow politics to the extent that pundits like you and I have the luxury of doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can understand how somebody who is a low information voter and who is economically right wing, if they believe that something that seems quite plausible on the surface, that Joe Biden is a puppet of socialists. I mean, after all, there are polls that show a majority of millennials say they're willing to vote for a socialist, even if most of those millennials don't actually know what socialism is. It's still scary, right? Um, and and they, the party almost nominated a self-described socialist, even if his policies are actually just social democracy, twice, right? And uh, one of the most popular uh, figures in the Democratic Party today is is um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, not least of which because she's young and beautiful and well-spoken, and she calls herself a socialist, all of these things um, make it to a low information voter seem very plausible that the Democratic Party is being taken over by a bunch of commies. And if that's what you think, I think a right wing person absolutely would vote for Donald Trump to stop that. And uh, if, if if I thought that was what was happening, I probably would, too. This is really interesting. We're making some serious inroads into the question we're asking here, aren't we? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we are. I mean, so that that's that. There, it, it, some people just really bought the lie that Donald Trump sold that uh, that the Democrats are more radical than they are, and on some level, that's the fault of the Democrats. If you ask me, I think the Democratic well, Party. <laughs> really, frankly, it is mainly the fault of the Democrats. I agree. I mean, it's mainly the fault of Trump for being a lying liar who lies, but it's also the fault of the Democrats who making making it so easy for his lies to sound plausible. Yes, a hundred percent. And if if we are to be even more outspoken and even more truthful, perhaps we would say that that would be more the democratic base than it would be the the democratic kind of upholders or gatekeepers. I mean, it was a very specific set of circumstances we saw Donald Trump win the Republican nomination and subsequently the de- the general election. In the general election, he won in part or to a large extent because Hillary Clinton was the second most. Uh, disliked presidential candidate of all time behind only Trump. She was seen as the embodiment of the establishment during an election when populism was uh, on the rise massively and the establishment was the most hated kind of political <laughs> construct of the time. But also... Yeah, yeah. During, the, the, oh, go ahead. Yeah. During the Republican primary, the very specific set of circumstances was that the Republican establishment failed to coalesce behind any specific candidate which they would have seen as preferable to trump at the time the sorry the republican yeah but the democrats didn't make that mistake this time around they coalesced around joe biden um being the 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 democratic presidential candidates those in the senate and the house that would have been very interested in the in the issue so it was the democratic base that was on the cusp of electing bernie sanders or, or selecting bernie sanders as their candidate but at the same time it was the democratic gatekeepers that were the ones to be grateful towards that that didn't happen. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders both had a ceiling of about one third of the voters in their own parties during the primary. And that is enough to win the primary if it's a wide field. If all of the moderate and conservative uh, members of both parties are divided between all the other establishment candidates, the radical populist one third uh, gets its nominee. That's exactly what happened in the case of Donald Trump. Now, the question, of course, is once he became the nominee and the party had a chance to reject him and they did not, and they threw themselves behind him and 
uh, bent over for him, frankly. Um, once they've done that, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that the number of people who buy into Trumpist populism is actually, you know, 90% of the Republican Party as voted for him in the general election? I mean, it's important to point out, by the way, it was never Trump conservatives who gave Joe Biden this victory because Republicans actually made gains in the House. Um, mm-hmm. They're going to keep the Senate, most likely, depending on what happens in this runoff in Georgia. If, if Georgia does go Democrat, then that would that would be much more of a repudiation of Trumpism and, and Republicanism in general uh, under Trump, especially in, in, in such a conservative state. Uh, but but broadly, at the national level, it seems like people w- voted for Republicans for Congress and the Senate. And then some significant percentage of people who did that did not vote for Trump and, in fact, even voted for Joe Biden because Biden um, didn't do as well with people of color uh, um, as he as uh, Hillary Clinton did. Right. Or as Barack Obama did. Trump actually outperformed expectations with people of color, in part because of uh, Cubans who are um, descended from people who fled from communism. Right. Um, That's a perfectly understandable reason. But I think it's also because there are members of there are people in the in in the community of um, who are not white who buy into populism. And so Trump has some appeal to them. Right. Uh, and and so basically, yeah, it was really never Trump conservatives who actually gave gave Trump the election. So I, I do see it as a repudiation of Trumpism. And if the Republican Party strategists and elites are smart about it, they will, too, um, just in the sense that, sure, you could probably run a Trumpist in, you know, deep red parts of the flyover states, but running a Trumpist at the national level or in a or in a blue state for Congress, it, it would seem like a losing proposition based on the data. Um, a lot to unpack there. I'm not sure if this is the case in the US as well, but I've been saying a lot of what you've just said um, and it has not been the orthodox or it hasn't been the commonplace thinking in Ireland the or, or in Europe for that matter. The thinking has been that Joe Biden under, underperformed the polls, that um, Donald Trump performed far better than he was predicted to or should have. But I just don't see it that way. At the end of the day, let's put all of the nonsense about, uh, you know, a fraudulent election or a rigged election to the side. And Joe Biden has received the most votes of any presidential candidate ever with a popular vote victory in the region of five or six million. He's received the same electoral college victory that Trump received in 2016 when he claimed it was some sort of historic landslide. And so I think while a blue wave, as you as you mentioned, didn't occur in terms of Democrats winning down ballot and um, that merely reaffirms the point you've made that it's a sort of never Trump conservative um, true to the form Republican that almost handed Joe Biden this victory, willing to vote for Joe Biden because he represented some sort of stability after the years of Trump's chaos, but at the same time handing Republican um, Senate and House candidates um, victories uh, down ballot. Before we move on from the point as well about the kind of the, the dichotomy between Bernie Sanders' populist campaign in 16 and 2020 and Donald Trump's campaign, I must admit, and maybe it's an idea that you've come across um, as someone interested in international politics and someone who always wants to offer your your listeners some sort of international perspective on US elections and politics. Um, Bernie Sanders is somebody that, as reasonable as I sound, (laughs) uh, I was a a supporter of, uh, a fan of, I, I knew he was a man of character and a man of consistency, but also if you live in Ireland or you live in Sweden, Germany, 
Norway, particularly the Nordic countries, Bernie Sanders would be seen as a centrist, perhaps centre-left politician in those countries. So I, even more to the extent I'm standing up for Trump supporters here in the face of people in Ireland and elsewhere that say, you know, um, a, a high motivating factor for their vote for Trump was the fact that he said what was on their minds and it wasn't too, it wasn't too nice what was on their minds. But I'm, I'm saying that, you know, there was some sort of populist economics that um, led to them supporting Trump. They didn't really like the establishment. They were afraid that the far left was enveloping the Democratic Party. But even more so, I empathize with those Bernie Sanders supporters that, you know, are, are hugely and emphatically dissatisfied with the healthcare system in the United States, with an economic system and a socioeconomic ladder that they feel is rigged against them. Um, so yeah, just to offer you the international perspective that I know you're always interested in. Yeah, I appreciate that for sure. Um, I've heard several people say that about Europe, and I think it's true that on economic issues, um, Western Europe in particular seems much more comfortable with social democratic policy, even going under the label of socialist um, than the U.S. is. But, you know, uh, that said, uh, Corbyn lost um, rather. He, he was quite walloped. <laughs> um, well, he, was a, he was a politician of a far more radical left persuasion than Bernie Sanders. Yeah, and 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 also deeply anti-Semitic, among other things. Correct. Um, yeah, so I I don't share your sympathy for Trump voters and Bernie Sanders voters, but I think that is because you probably are on the center left, although you have an inclination to compromise and therefore call yourself a centrist first. And and I'm more on the center right. I have the same inclination you do. So I'm perfectly comfortable being called a, cent a centrist. So I would prefer to phrase it as I'm willing to compromise with, uh, with Trump voters and Bernie Sanders supporters on certain policy issues um, in order to de-radicalize them would be my main goal. Not because I actually am sympathetic toward their worldview, if that makes a difference. That does make a difference. That does, that, that makes a difference. And um, I'll, 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 I'll match you in the sense that um, I was having a conversation the other day and I said that off the record, um, essentially what my article boils down to is that it is obvious that there is a large number of Trump supporters who supported him um, for prejudice reasons. They heard his comments about uh, certain countries being shitholes. They heard his comments demeaning those who they themselves demean, and they voted for him largely on on that basis. I then, yeah, and, sorry, go ahead. I then went on to to say that it seems less obvious to me. So this is my concession, but it does seem less obvious because these these supporters. Maybe it's because they're less vocal and um, that there is a swathe of Trump supporters that have no prejudice bone whatsoever in their body. Um, I mean, if you're going to assume that, you're going to have to assume that maybe they weren't following the news or that they genuinely believed that Trump didn't mean anything or that, you know, maybe what he said was misconstrued. But they were, you, if you accept that um, there's a swathe of Trump supporters that voted for him purely because they're fed up with the economic status quo, the social status quo, um, the fear they, they're enveloped by the fear of the far left, the Democratic Party. Um, if you accept that those people also exist, then I think the question should be, you should just totally disregard those prejudiced Trump supporters because they're never going to be win. They're never, the Democratic Party is never going to win them over, but also the Democratic Party shouldn't want to win them over. And your question, therefore, should be, how do we appeal to these Trump supporters who voted for him because they were dissatisfied with the Democrats 
or because they were dissatisfied in general with how the, with the direction that America was going in. I think that that was, yeah. that was essentially what it boiled down to. Yeah, I agree. I think that some percentage of Trump supporters, the Democratic Party should be able to reach through um, left wing economic policy or center left left economic policy. Uh, if they just moderate a little bit on issues like immigration uh, and guns, um, they could start winning Please in some say. of those fly, which which I which I think would be a good thing because they're uh, the party is a bit radical on both of those both of those topics, at least um, by U.S. standards and certainly by the standards of people in the flyover states. Um, so if they were to moderate a little bit on those issues, not at the national level, but just you know. Uh, with uh, candidates for Congress in, in those, those red Trump States um, and, and run on uh, some left-wing economic policies. I think the Democrats could get some of their voters. I also think that the Republicans could, could de-radicalize some of those people, including the bigots, frankly, um, by just not pandering to them anymore. Uh, They, they had those people locked up as voters for quite some time without having to pander to them to, to the extent that, that Trump did. Um, so they could simply go back to doing that. Uh, and a little tough love approach. If, if these people are going to stay on the right, then, you know, they could stand to have a little tough love coming from the Republican party that needs to remind them that they have some personal responsibility, that it's not entirely the fault of evil elites that they aren't employable, you know, that they could move. Um, to some place where there are more jobs, uh, they could go back to school. You know, they're they're <laughs> frankly that's what an actual right winger should tell those people. Um, so I would like to see the Trump. I would like I would like to see uh, the ones who are going to stick with the Republican Party get put in their place. Um, and I'd be perfectly happy to see some of them go over to the side of the Democrats, and then maybe the Republicans could focus on actually winning on the coasts Sunday. Yeah, the the Republican Party is. A, is- is definitely um, a complex issue. I have people asking me, um, how is it that so many Congress people, uh, Republican Congress people, and even senators are willing to stand by um, Trump in this in this moment where he's you know accusing of a of a coup or a rigged election? And I have to remind them that a lot of these Republicans are in deeply red states or congressional districts where their biggest electoral um, threat comes from a primary from a Trump supporter who's willing to outflank them in terms of um, insanity and uh, arriving perspective. And it's not having to pander to those common sense voters or perhaps swing voters or democratic persuadables, but rather having to kind of solidify that Trumpist base. So um, I, I thought that, that that's something of interest, but more, more to the point, um, obviously, it's obvious at this stage that, you know, I've thought a great deal about our, of our last conversation, but I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on not your, your ideal outcome or your aspiration, um, but rather your prediction for what does happen to the Republican Party over the next few years. Before I get there, I want to just double down on what you said about uh, gerrymandering, essentially, that really, actually, this is why it should be a bipartisan issue to fix the problem of partisan gerrymandering, because in the long term, it's bad for both parties. If you want if you're a Republican who wants to see your party be able to go back to being a small government, fiscally conservative, pro-capitalist, pro-free trade, uh, pro-business party. Um, then you should welcome having a, a more nonpartisan um, di- districting lines drawn up. Because what that means is 
you're no your biggest threat no longer is uh you know people coming from the the alt right in a primary to kick you out of your seat right now you actually have a chance of winning by speaking to independents and swing voters and and uh, conservative democrats and so forth so that would be a, a very good thing for both parties and we absolutely need to, what i think is that the leadership of both parties the elites in the republican party and in the democratic party need to work together to de-radicalize their bases, their respective bases. And I think there's going to be a little bit of a realignment that goes on where some of these Trump voters hopefully go over to the Democratic Party where they clearly belong um, and Republicans start taking some conservative, certainly economically right-wing Democrats back into the Republican fold on the coasts. That's what I'm hoping will happen, but we'll have to wait and see. It entirely depends on which one of us is right about just, just how bad... The average Republican voter is today. You know, if it's if it's actually ninety percent of Republicans who are hardcore Trump supporters, I don't think that's the case, by the way. Um, but if that's the case, then you know, there, there there's no saving that party. It's going to be the Trump party. But I'm hoping that it isn't. Yeah, and the, those who those who hope for the best for the future of U.S. democracy probably hope it isn't as well. But um, yeah, no, look, like my personal uh, perspective on it is that people often forget. Um, aside from the the very specific and interesting points you make about gerrymandering and political kind of structures, aside from the policy debates that people obsessed with politics have day in and day out, that so much of politics um, comes down to uh, personnel and people and characters and strength of character or weakness of character, and that so many Trump supporters voted for Trump on the basis of Trump the brand. They associated him with him with success, with um, wealth with prosperity, you know, with the American dream, and so I think if if the if the moderates of the Republican Party are to be successful, and it's something that I've kept a keen eye on, I think that we're going to have to see a very small number, but a very clear uh, grouping of Republicans that are very impressive, very um, approachable, easy to relate to very successful you know I, I just need to see some really strong characters come out that um, are going to be able to wow the American people to the extent that Trump and all his awful policies did but um, I think that you know the, the the kind of the contrary to this point is that people would say to me well look Joe Biden wasn't that wasn't that mesmerizing of, of a character but I just think that the Democratic Party is a bit different if the Republican voters are to be wowed personality matters a lot and I'm trying to keep an eye on the more moderate wing of the, of the Republican Party as to see if somebody of that ilk emerges. But that is one thing that I'm concerned about at the moment, that those prominent Republican figures of, um, of moderate policy persuasions uh, have already had their time. Uh, the Mitt Romneys, the, the Jeb Bushes, um, even other uh, contend- uh, some of the contenders that ran in 2016. But, you know, it's the, it's the Trump it's the Trump type politicians who are on the rise still in the Republican Party, even if it's not Trump himself, the Ted Cruz's, the Hawley's, you know? Yeah, I, I think there's some truth to that. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, it's possible that a lot of these, uh, I, I, like, I don't I don't think that Trump, I, I'm, excuse me, I don't think that Cruz and, and Rubio, for example, are really all that Trumpist. I think that they were pandering to Trump and to Trump voters. Um, and I'm hoping that Trump losing means that over time, 
I don't, they're not, they're not going to turn around and denounce Trump and Trump voters that you, you, that would be political suicide. But I think what they could do is just, you know, kind of over time, just stop talking about him, stop talking about the things that he talked about. Um, and you know, before, before Trumpism took over the party, Rubio was, a, was the moderate on immigration. Um, for example. And so I, I, I do think that there is a chance that you'll, you'll be able to get some people, by the way, I think that, uh, personality matters a lot in both parties. Um, it, it, it definitely hurt Biden that he wasn't that charismatic. I mean, just think about how charismatic Bill Clinton and Barack Obama were, right. Or that Ronald Reagan was. Um, and, and the weird thing is Trump does have a kind of charisma that speaks to a certain kind of person. And you're right that he's, he's impressive, I think it was Sam Harris said that Donald Trump is a poor person's idea of a rich person, <laughs> right? Um, whereas, whereas actually rich people- Or a um, person's impression of a smart person. Yeah, exactly. That those Both of those things are 100% accurate. Um, whereas an actually rich person looks at Trump and thinks, oh my gosh, this guy stinks of new money. He has no class, blah, 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 blah. Um, but yeah, no, he certainly was impressive to a certain demographic. That's undeniable. Yeah, look, uh, he, he appealed to- to a, a certain type of voter that um, was was you know not not accounted for in polling. They, we talk constantly about the the weighting of education and polling. Trump did bring out a voter um, and somebody who turned into a very vocal type of voter that mightn't have voted for Mitt Romney or mightn't have voted for anybody in general. There was a U.S. politics study re- um, released a few years ago. Uh, I think it dealt mainly with congressional races, to be honest with you, but it found that. Part of the reason why, in cases, moderates won was because in politics, it's actually more important to motivate your base through a hatred of the opponent than it is to actually motivate their base through a love of oneself. And I think that Biden, for all his lack of charisma, for his deficit in intellectual sharpness, for his lack of inspirational policy agenda, managed to you know, as simplistic as it sounds, leave Donald Trump, lose the election to himself. And, oh, no, I think know, that's, yeah, I no, think I think that's exactly right. I think in the primary, Biden won because he was an anti-Sanders vote. And in the general election, he won because he was an anti-Trump vote. And frankly, I'm very happy with both of those things. And like, it, it bears well in the Democratic Party following that principle and following that pattern that we've seen with him beating Sanders and um, and Trump for the Democrats, when all of them said and done about the AOCs and the squads and and whoever having a control over the Democratic Party, for the Democrats, the next time they have to nominate a presidential candidate, nominating a Pete Buttigieg or a Kamala Harris or, uh, you know, somebody of that ilk. But I just don't have the same, having studied this extensively, I don't have the same confidence in the Republican Party, particularly after the last four years, to almost revolutionize that which they've already proven themselves to be and become these voters that now say you know what we're we're looking for a sensible economic policy here and we mightn't be totally on board with liberal social values but we just wanted a sensible conservative um social agenda i have more trust i think i said this earlier in the democrats to over the next decade or two nominate a number of um impressive moderate candidates than i do the republican party yeah um you know, I, I think there is actually some hope here because we are seeing a trend where Texas is likely going to turn blue, right? It's already purple. 
Um, and I think if the Republican Party triples down on Trumpism, it will turn blue faster. Uh, so I think what the Republican Party needs to do, and this has to come from the top, this won't be something that the base does spontaneously by itself. The Republican leadership needs to draw a new electoral map for its party that does not take Texas for granted and that doesn't allow uh, the Democrats to take the coasts for granted. Mm -hmm. If it could do that, then it has a future beyond Trumpism. If not, then it doesn't have a future at all in the long term, it would seem to me. I, I think that's really interesting. And I have a, a question that I think you, you too will find interesting, which is that a core fixture, um, if you were to ask a political scientist, but also I'm no political scientist, but I'll also say of a centrist or moderate brand of politics is a belief, um, and we've discussed this before, in the institutions of society, of a capitalist mixed economy, of a generally liberal social policy, of a, a belief in that which which has brought us so far, which has eradicated poverty in societies, which has given a, a equality of opportunity to so many people. But, you know, in, and in life, I think there's two perspectives. There's those who believe in those structures and believe in, um, you know, those institutions and those who don't. And yet polling shows such a high percentage of uh, the Republican Party to believe Trump that U.S. democracy is irreparably damaged, corrupted, uh, chaos is likely to ensue. Um, elections have been a, a presidential election has been rigged uh, on the basis of fraudulent votes. Some votes were set fire to, and others were artificially created. In a party where a base supposedly believes that we have, we're either going to witness the re-election of Donald Trump or the fall of U.S. democracy. How can we trust such a party's supporters to, in the next election cycle or the election cycle after that, say, yeah, do you know who we're going to choose? We're going to choose the moderate candidate. Yeah. Um, so in closing here, it seems to me that your piece is correct in that not all 72 million of the people who voted for Donald Trump are bigots. Um, I think that I personally suspect it's more than 15% of them. Um but it might be that it's only 15% of them who are like hardcore, you know, KKK, proud boy, Klansmen types, right? Um, but I think that there's more like 50% of Trump voters who at a bare minimum, even if they aren't proud racists themselves, they're at least willing to tolerate a racist president in order to get their way on policies that they wanted, which I think is still... Um, deplorable enough to deserve the deplorable label. <laughs> um, however, the other half of Trump voters, I think, were just low information voters, partisan Republicans who who just checked the R box and didn't pay enough attention to see just how incredibly big of a departure Trump and Trumpism is from the party they think they're supporting with that vote. Uh, and I think that 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 the Democrats um, made it all too easy for Trump to keep those people by cozying up the socialists as much as they have. Um, and, and also, frankly, one thing I am sympathetic about is on, on, on social issues. I used to consider myself fiscally conservative and socially progressive. I don't even call myself socially progressive anymore because some of the PC stuff has gone so far that it's getting quite ridiculous, <laughs> frankly. And so I do think that it is time for a pushback against some of the identity politics. But it seems obvious to me that the way to push back against identity politics is through is not through 
more identity politics, right? White identity politics isn't the answer to black identity politics. Straight identity politics isn't the answer to LGBT identity politics, etc. cetera. Uh, but I, I, I do have some sympathy to people who are concerned about PC culture going too far. But what I say to those people is, okay, yeah, I agree. Let's not be PC. The un-PC truth is studies show that people without a college degree are more likely to be unapologetically bigoted. And so any party that is going to aim to get a significant chunk of the working class vote is going to be getting bigot votes, including the Democrats. Yeah, interesting. I suppose, at, like, um, in, in closing, I, uh, the, we at the Progressive Brief are going to continue to try to highlight, um, almost as you mentioned, the similarities between those populists on both left and right and the fact that they both despise the institutions of democracy and uh, capitalism in that they both uh, revel in the marginalization of certain communities, be it economically based or ethnically based, and try to work towards um, a cohesive narrative for the centers, the center left, the center and the center right, because at the end of the day, it's not going to be by stand, it's not going to be by um, idly standing by and, you know, letting those on the PC side of the debate or letting those bigoted individuals on the um, on the anti-PC side of the debate or allowing those uh, left-wing economic populists, socialists, letting those right-wing economic populists, also quite socialist, well, anti-free anti trade, quite protectionist. Um, it's not by allowing those to uh, unfiltered um, discuss their ideas and uh, perpetuate their ideas how we are going to, to to pave a better path forward. So it's going to be interesting to see what plays out not only in the next few months but also in the longer term and see if um, some of our ideas play true and some are uh, some turn out to be uh, inaccurate. Yeah, and and it's not just the protectionist trade policy and isolationist foreign policy that the populist alt right shares with the populist far far left. The populist alt right is also much more pro social welfare policies like Medicare and Social Security than the actual right is as well. So <laughs> I think it's quite accurate to call them national socialists, and that's what I've been calling them. Um, but here's the thing, Adam, and this is why I think that the Republican Party has a, a chance of of recentering itself. Um, in the swing states, as I said, the swing states that Biden won, the, the ones that he took back from Trump, the ones Trump won in 2016 and lost in 2022 or 2020, <laughs> um, in those states, 6 to 10% of registered Republicans voted for Joe Biden. Now, we need to talk about how strange that is. It's not we're not just talking about them, you know, voting for Jorgensen or something like that. We're talking about them voting for a Democrat while staying registered Republican and obviously most of them also voting for Republicans at the congressional level. And so what that tells me is. And by the way, in these same states, Trump overperformed among people of color in those states um, more than he did in 2016, as I said. Right. So I really do believe that never Trump Republicans are can save this party. Um, I've seen the Lincoln Project has said, like, oh, we're not really going to go back to the Republicans. But that's because they're political operatives and the Republican Party maybe doesn't want them back after they betrayed the party. But frankly, I think that the leadership of the GOP in the long term would be very smart to get those people back, especially if they do want to you know, move beyond Trumpism as a party. Um, so I don't know how seriously I take that idea. But I think in terms of voters, I think never Trump conservatives should stay Republicans. I, I was, I am currently registered a Democrat because I voted 
in the Democratic primary and because I switched parties uh, when when Trump became the nominee. But I'm going to go back to being a Republican, um, even though I'm very happy that Joe Biden won. Um, in fact, perhaps because I'm happy that Joe Biden won. I think it's important for Never Trump conservatives to stay Republicans, because if the party keeps seeing this happen, where they keep losing the Electoral College, despite getting more and more people of color with this populist rhetoric, and they can see why is because, you know, up, upwards of 10% of Republicans are voting for the Democrat. <laughs> I think if they, if they see that happening, um, then the party will have to learn its lesson. And I think it would be good for the party to learn its lesson sooner rather than later. It, it might be the debater in me or, or perhaps the part of me that likes to play devil's advocate, but just two points for you. Um, firstly, pertaining to the registered Republicans who voted for Biden this time, uh, uh, and specifically re- registered Republicans who in 2020 were willing to vote for Joe Biden and perhaps voted down ballot for um, for GOP candidates. I can't help but feel that the specifics of this moment played such a part in that, um, and I'm thinking very specifically here about COVID-19. In states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin ravaged, I mean, when 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 Donald Trump went for his rallies in, in Green Bay, a, a, a pure COVID hotspot where there's a... Um, a, state, a field hospital in the state park in Wisconsin. I can't help but feel some of those never Trump Republicans who really, really would have been opposed to the idea of voting for Joe Biden or a Democratic candidate and who wouldn't have done so under any circumstance except for the fact that people were dying and Donald Trump was playing a part in it, both through ignorance and also conscious actions. Um, so that would make me less hopeful that in 2024, 2028 or 2032, they would do the same under virtually any other circumstance. And then on the other point about um, Trump improving amongst um, the minorities, but um, Joe Biden making inroads amongst uh, kind of the white working class and white males. And when you look at the 2016 polling statistics of how poorly Trump polled amongst uh, minorities, um, African-Americans in particular, uh, it, it was almost well, you know, nothing's impossible with Trump, but it would have been very, very difficult for him to have possibly not done as well as he did. And uh, improving, particularly with the power of the presidency and the power of incumbency, seemed to me, months in advance, I was saying, an almost inevitability. And it wasn't going to, something, it wasn't going to be something that would worry me as a, long, a long-term trend. Yeah, I, I think both of those points are perfectly valid. I would just throw in one other piece of data, which is that since Trump became president, the number of people nationwide who are actually registered as Republicans has been dropping. They've lost something like 17% of what they had before, right? Um, so that is a serious problem. I think that the party looking at that, plus the fact that so many registered Republicans in key swing states voted for Joe Biden, um, should be enough, hopefully, to give them a wake-up call. Um, and you know, I, I think, I think people leaving the GOP and joining the Democrats, uh, over this, uh, also makes sense. And if, if, if the GOP doesn't recenter on actual right-wing politics, then we might end up seeing a situation where all the never Trump former Republicans, um, make the democratic party essentially become the new right-wing party, uh, cause they are influential. Um, they donate to campaigns, um, and they vote more reliably than, you know, the progressive woke left does. So I'll be sticking with whichever party actually comes out of this being on the right. <laughs> we've, we've, we've spoken before about the need for anti-populists or centrists to admit that you can't be a progressive without being conservative to an extent. And the same uh, proves with the country. You know, I always say as a centrist, I stand up for and want to conserve that, which is 
which is worth conserving, and I want to initiate progress in areas where progress is worth initiating um, and where the status quo needs to be challenged. And so, obviously, as such, it, it, it seems obvious to say, but I'll say it regardless, that a, a strong Republican Party um, in terms of a moderate uh, or a centre-right perspective is, of course, an invaluable asset to the rest uh, to, to, to the future of America and American democracy. You don't want a far-left Democratic Party, um, but unless the, the Republicans manage to get their house in order, and as I say, I'm not as optimistic about it as you are or as I was a couple months ago, um, I think that that seems as almost kind of an inadvertent consequence. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I think that it's, you know, a sure thing. I think that it's going to be very, 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 very hard. Um, and that the the leadership of the Republican Party needs to make a conscious decision to think about the future, future strategy, and not just, you know, what's right around the corner. Um, if, if they continue down this path, they are going to have to get further and further um, anti-democratic because they simply will not be able to win at the national level playing by the rules, period, um, under the direction that it's going. So that would be a very bad thing for the country. And for me, it's not even a matter of it being more moderate. Yes, I want it to be conservative as, as opposed to radical is the way I would put it. But I also, I, I want there to be an actual right-wing party to vote for. Um, uh, you know, ideally I wouldn't want there to be any left-wing parties, but like as insofar as there is a, a, a call for the left, I am willing to compromise with the left. Uh, and, and so in that sense, I do consider myself a centrist, um, but just coming from the other side. In countries where the left-wing parties dissipate, the, the, the results don't tend to be too favorable. No, no. And, and there are also places where, uh, you know, fascist and, um, and co communist populist parties build a coalition together, this is true, yeah. <laughs> which, yeah. which is truly horrifying to think about how terrible that would be. So yeah, no, I think, I think that one, one the one thing we have going for us really is that elites of this country and both parties couldn't be further from the populists in their worldview and in their, and, and I, frankly, I, again, if they really don't want political correctness, I'll just say it. I think elites have superior values. <laughs> okay. So I, I think that those people need to stand up for their values, uh, being hypocrites and, and, and just putting, you know, power over, uh, principle, um, is not the way forward. If elites stand up for their own values, we might be able to save America. And there's, there's a really interesting point to be made, which is that, you know, overarches to the left wing typically result in economic catastrophe, economies collapse, poverty becomes rampant. But at the same time, um, if uh, overarches to right wing economics often mean that many people become left behind. We saw that most recently in the United Kingdom, for example, with inequities um, emerging, massive inequities emerging in the response to coronavirus and the healthcare system, the, the National Health Service in general. Um, so I think that, just to reaffirm again, my hope for America is that there is some sort of semblance of normality because this is what we experienced for so long. Um, a, strong, uh, a strong democratic presence amongst the likes of Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, will stand up for a very real, very kind of, very real centered and grounded in reality liberal perspective and also the likes of Mitt Romney, John McCain, George Bush on the Republican side willing and able to stand up for a very real and um, conservative type of politics. Yeah, or even Ronald Reagan, frankly. I mean, Reagan has to be rolling over in his grave saying how Trump has 
basically, um, you know, given created a vacuum for communist China to fill in foreign policy. Right. And and to essentially be a, a puppet of a former KGB guy. <laughs> it's just despicable. OK, that all sounds great, Adam. Thank you for coming back on. Uh, is there anything you want to tell our listeners in signing out? Thanks so much for having me. And similar to last time when uh, I, being the, the abnormal individual I am, um, t- thought about this, uh, my, my experience on this podcast for quite some time, I'm, I'm sure it'll be the same this time around. And I'm sure lots of my colleagues um, with the Progressive Brief and friends will also be listening in and, and reflecting upon the discussion we've just had. Yeah. And as I said, definitely check out the Progressive Brief, subscribe to their newsletter, send them money. Um, Adam's doing great work there. And it's hard to it's hard to keep this in mind, listening to how articulate and intelligent um, and informed Adam is. But you're just like 20, 21 years old, aren't you? Uh, I won't be 21 till March when hopefully uh, the, the, the vaccine will be rolled out so I can properly celebrate. And you'll be old enough to drink in, in the United States. <laughs> If I, if I get over there eventually. <laughs> All right. Uh, signing out, moving forward, is our gumbo. Thank you very much for listening to the Moving Forward podcast. Together... Through these conversations, we are all working to ensure that the Humanity First movement keeps moving forward. If you haven't yet, please visit our website at movingforwardpod.com, where you can support our Patreon. We will use those funds to advertise, to grow our audience so more people hear these important conversations. Thank you very much.